the Friday sun beat down on this little corner market, making the open sign which hung in the dusty window of the door nearly illegible. But in that small town, no one really needed to know or be reminded of the hours of business. You see, everybody knew, depending on the day and the time, exactly who would be manning the counter of that market store. It was a family-run business. See, the dad had built the store with his own bare hands when his two, young, his two sons were still real young. And ever since they could walk, well, it had been like their second home, sort of learning the ins and outs of running a small business, customer service, really important things like getting the perfect slurpy mixture combinations. At 15, they were taught how to run the place on their own. And so during school hours, the dad uh, was there manning the store. But before school started, the older brother would be there and, and man the store before school. And once school let out each day, the younger son would head straight there to take his shift. And it was a Fridays, as you can imagine, that was always the toughest on the young boy. The other days of the week, he could just use his downtime to finish up his homework for the night. With all of his papers sprawled out all over the counter there, no one really seemed to mind. But on Fridays, after school, when all of his friends would go out and they would celebrate the weekend that had come, sometimes by gathering at one of their houses or sometimes even by heading up to the nearby lake, well, he was always stuck right there. Sometimes his friends would even stop by on the Friday afternoons just to sort of entice him a little bit to leave, give him some jabs. They'd brag about their weekend plans, and they would always extend an invite, of course, but they knew that the answer would be no. He didn't have a and the more times that he had to say no, well, the, the more and more resentful he became. Until that one Friday afternoon, it would, it would prove to sort of be a turning point in his life. He heard the screech of tires in the parking lot. His friends suddenly came crashing through the store doors of the market. They grabbed all their usuals. Some Doritos, some energy drinks, you know, the staples of youth. <laughs> and one of his friends walked up, slammed the money down on the counter, and he announced, road trip. And it was just those two little words, all that was needed to set the younger brother off. To fill him with rage over the fact that once again, just like every other weekend, he was missing out. His friends, of course, expressed that they, you know, wished, like always, that he could come along. And that's where he suddenly stopped him. This would be the last straw. He slammed his fist down and said, you got an extra seat? I'm coming with you. Give me a few minutes. Let me close down shop. Wait for me outside in the parking lot. 
His friends all piled into their mom's minivan that they had been borrowing for the weekend. The young son went to the door there. He flipped around that plastic sign, closed. It had been the first time there was a change to business hours since the time the store opened. And he quickly made his, down, his way down the hallway, past that single stall restroom on the right. And he made a left into the office, which also served as the storage room. And he went over to the wall and he swept away a box of corn nuts there, a stack of Pepsi, to that one picture that hung on the wall. He took it off the hook and there it was. That metal safe that he had never been in himself, but he knew the combination. Just like a lot of passwords in their life, it was mom's birth date. They still celebrated her birthday every year, even though she had passed away many years earlier, and so he turned the knob. Ten, two, 72, and it cracked open, that metal door swung open. And he grabbed an empty box on the floor and he just started shoveling stacks of bills into that cardboard box. Just as he was about to make his getaway, he turned around and there he found his dad standing in the doorway. Of course, that's the way the story goes, right? See, dad had been passing by, just simply running errands when he looked towards the store and he saw that closed sign in the window, which thought, thought certainly it must have been some sort of mistake. His older son earlier in the morning must have met, had a mental lapse, forgot to turn that sign around, and so he went in to check on the store. And the first thing he found was no one manning the counter. Already broken rule number one. He was already a little upset by the time he got to the doorway. And with the open safe and his son's buddies in the minivan out in the parking lot, well, it didn't take long for him to quickly assess that situation. He said, son, what are you planning to do? His son didn't really give an answer. He just began to vent. I'm tired of not being able to go with my friends. I'm sick of working for you. I hate this place. I figure someday you're going to have to give it to us anyway, so I figure I'll just take my share now and be out of your life. The father stepped aside out of the doorway, said, well, if that's what you've made up your mind to do, I guess I can't really stop you. So the son sidestepped dad, big cardboard box underhand, and headed for the front. As he neared that glass doorway, he saw the old Ford beat-up pickup truck of his older brother sitting out front. And he had just barely taken a step into the parking lot when his older brother confronted him. He didn't really have to say anything, for he just took one look at his younger brother with that cardboard box, and he took a look at dad who had towed closely behind, and he could immediately tell that his younger brother had done something really stupid. 
An older brother, he wasn't really known for being the rational type. And so he just suddenly lunged toward him, fist ready to strike. His forward momentum was suddenly jerked back for his dad, got the inside of his collar, and held him back. Younger brother yelled, I've worked for this. I deserve this. I'm leaving this place. And he hopped in the minivan. Friend put that thing in drive and they sped away. Woo. Man, what a beginning to a road trip. And as you can imagine, four young dudes with a box with that kind of cash, you can have quite a weekend. Well, just as planned, the three three friends of his, they came back after the wild weekend was over. But the younger brother, well, he decided that he had made up his mind to stay. He was going to begin a new life out on his own, finally, out from under the authority of dad and the judgment of older brother. And if the story sounds at all familiar... It's because it's the beginning of one of Jesus' most famous tales. It's the parable of the prodigal son. If you got your Bibles, you can turn real quick to Luke chapter 15. Now, the story, Jesus doesn't really give us a whole lot of the, uh, a whole lot of the uh, context, or you could say the backstory to this story. And so this is just simply how I imagine the, uh, uh, the backstory going. If it were told in our context, in our culture, uh, well, it probably would have gone down something like that. Luke chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 13. And let me just read the story. It says, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted money on wild living. About the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs began to look good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, Man, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here, look at me. I'm dying of hunger. I'll go home. I'll go home to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. That's important. Keep that in mind. So he returned home to his father. And he, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father interrupted. And he said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. 
We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so it says that the party began. Now, some of you may have your own story of being lost and found. Maybe it's a testimony that you would share where you would say, man, I was like that son. I was lost, but now I am found. We can all probably share some sort of story like that. And the cool thing, of course, with the story of this lost son is it just goes to show that anybody, anybody has an opportunity to be found. Jesus, in the parable, when he tells this, he he intends to relate to certain people, right? And so even the different people in his story are, are meant to represent others or maybe groups of people. And so when it comes to the lost brother, it's meant to represent the tax collectors. If you even look in, uh, in the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, it starts out by saying, all right, so there was a crowd of people that had gathered around Jesus. There was tax collectors, and then it just says notorious sinners. So we just get to use our imagination. Those are like the lost son that would gather around Jesus. And here's the mentality of a lost son, one that is lost but then found. It is this, that I am no longer worthy. You saw him say that a couple of times in that story. One of those is in verse 21. And although the story began with such pride and rebellion, he came to acknowledge his sin. And the good news that he finds is that there is no sin outside God's grace. There is no sin. For if you look at the sin that he had committed, you know, in in that culture, in that time and day, Well, that was the unpardonable sin. In that culture which celebrated really men and fatherhood and husbands, it was that kind of society. The worst thing that you could do in order to be sort of ostracized in culture was what this kid did. Certainly the rest of the town Right, All the other people, in fact, even the crowd that would have been listening to Jesus would have understood the opposite reaction if his dad had had that. But we see in this story that there is no sin outside of God's grace. Notice even in verse 19, if you go back and you read that in your Bibles, he felt, the son felt like the absolute best scenario was actually that he could go back and he might, he hoped, this is what he was going to beg for. Could I just be a servant? Because actually coming back and being welcomed as a son was outside of the realm of possibility. It's not even something that he bothered to hope for. 
The best case scenario, scenario he thought was that he could come home and possibly be a servant. But he finds out that as far as the father is concerned, there's no sin outside of his grace. And so it doesn't matter what we've done, where we've been, who we've been. The good news in this story is that God always welcomes us back. And you know, in this story too, one of the things that I find interesting is that the son could have come back a lot sooner. You know, I wonder, we don't exactly know, but we do know that it it took him some time. He was hungry for, for quite a while. I mean, I don't know what it takes to get to the point where you look at some pig slop and goes, I think I might be able to do that. I mean, that tells me (laughs) this guy's been starving for a long time. Think about this. Man, why did it take so long? And you know what it was? It was guilt. It was pride that got him there in the pigsty. But you know what? It was guilt that kept him there for so long. I think a lot of times that's true in our own life. Because we know from the Bible that some of those feelings, you know what, are like God-ordained. We could even consider them from God. There are times where we feel conviction. And that's the moment where we go, we have that moment of conscience. And you know what? Be assured, that's God. God gives us conviction, but not guilt. And you feel guilt, shame, that's not of God. That's of us. We can even put that on Satan if we want to, but that's on us. God's not giving us that. Because it's the guilt and the shame that a lot of times keeps us in those those prisons that we're in. For it gives us the feeling as the younger brother expresses, I'm no longer worthy. I can't go back. Not after what I've done, where I've been. But there's no sin outside of God's grace. The father, of course, in the story, as I already mentioned, represents the father. Which would he would love with this sort of, I call it like a reckless abandon. Like he would love recklessly. Because one of the things that's really interesting about God's love when it's spoken of in the Bible, and we could even say of this father here in this story, is that he loves really irresponsibly. That's the way that God does. Because he always loves, he always forgives, you could say. He always shows us grace. It's for our benefit. Not ever because we deserve it. And so you see in the story, the father does a couple of things. One thing that's interesting is the son comes to the father. And, you know, I imagine he's got, he's got a speech prepared. You ever come up with one of those, right? You've rehearsed it in the car, like you see people parked, you know, like 
um, along you, alongside you, like the stoplight and everything, and you can tell, oh, they're rehearsing what they're going to say to their boss, their friend, their mom on mother's, right, whatever it might be. They've practiced in the mirror. Oh, certainly, this son, he's practiced his speech. He knows he better come prepared after what he's done. Oh, that better be a good speech. But the father doesn't let him give it, right? You'll notice in the story, he gets one line out, and then the father interrupts him. Now, me as a father, I like to think that I am very loving and grace-filled towards my children, but you want to know what? I'd be open to hearing the apology. I'd be all right with it. I don't think I'd stop my son. I'd let him go on. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then, right? Anything else you'd like to say? None of that. The father just interrupts him. We're going to have a party. Not only that, but he doesn't even let the son get all the way to him. He sees him off in the distance, and it says that he runs towards him. It's God initiating that restoration of relationship, for he desires that so much. So much so that he's not even going to let the son get out more than a sentence. Save your apologies. You feel conviction. But I'm glad your guilt hasn't kept you away from me any longer. The other thing that he does is he, well, he spends a lot of money, which I also think is really weird in the story. Because you know what? If my son went out and spent like half of my fortune, I don't know that I would celebrate by dropping a lot of money when he came back. But that's what this father does. Seems a little irresponsible to me. But again, it's a picture of the way that God loves, recklessly, without abandon. And then in the story, of course, the older brother, which actually you could say is the focal point of the story, represents those who were crowded around Jesus that would have been part of the Pharisees or the religious teachers And Jesus, if you go back and you read this story, what's interesting, you read through all of chapter 15, you'll notice that he actually begins telling this story, this parable, for their sake. So, the older brother represents them. This is what he says in verse 25. He says, meanwhile, the the older brother was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother's back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. Wouldn't even go in. His father came out. Again, look at that. The father initiating relationship, right? The father goes out to him. And he begged him. Father, go out. And he begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. 
And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Because isn't that what every young group of teenagers wishes for, right? <laughs> you know, I often thought in my youth, if I could just get my hands on a young goat, then we could really throw a party. Dad, you've never even gotten me a young goat. But when, a son, but when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. That's important. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Now imagine this. Listen, this crowd is gathered around Jesus, and do you want to know what? The most surprising thing to them in this story would have been the conclusion of it, because to their surprise... It turned out that the oldest son was described in the end as being more distant to God or his father than even the younger brother. That was unimaginable. And it, it's always interesting, you know, when these crowds would gather around Jesus. That there was always a little bit of a mix, right? And so sometimes, you know, it'll often say, like, tax collectors, other notorious sinners. Ooh, that sounds really bad. Uh, but we can put ourselves in that category probably. And then there's the Pharisees. They're always checking in on Jesus, you know, trying to trap him, slip him up and everything. The religious teachers. And what's really interesting is it's always the people, the lost sons, like those who are off from God. The sinners, who would normally tend to be the most comfortable around Jesus. And Jesus seemed to be really comfortable with them. So much so that he would share meals. He would have dinner with them. Well, the Pharisees, they didn't like that at all. And it was always the Pharisees and the religious teachers. Those, get this, in their day, that would have been assumed to be the closest to God who found themselves to be the most uncomfortable around Jesus. And in the story, the Pharisees, they would have identified much more with the older brother. They would have understood the mentality. The older's mentality was this. I deserve this. I deserve it. He says in Luke 15, 29, all of these years I've slaved for you. It's the same thing as saying, sort of like, after all I've done, this is how you repay me. You ever heard that before? And what would lead the older brother to say such a thing? Well, you know what? It was his internal belief deep down, that his father's love and his blessings even needed to be earned. But his father even says, listen, 
You're always with me. And so everything that I have is yours. In other words, all I am, man, all I have, I share with you. And the important thing is not because you've earned it, but because we're family. Because you're with me. Sometimes I get that from my kids a little bit. Because every once in a while, you know, they'll begin to, I can tell, feel a little bit entitled. They'll, they'll, use, um, they'll use possession with, you know, things, and they'll say mine and me. And so as a father, I do due diligence and remind them, well, who paid for those things? <laughs> right? You ever had those, those talks with your children? Oh, did you pay for that? Hmm, well, then I'm pretty sure it's mine, right? And then, of course, they always throw back like the family relationship thing on me. Well, you know, what's yours is mine. We're all family here, right? What's yours is mine. And so here are just a few insights that we see of the father in the story, specifically through the older brother. And uh, we'll end with this in just a moment. It's that God's love isn't based on our moral record. His love can only be accepted and it's never earned. With the younger brother, of course, that becomes very obvious because we know, we, like everybody understands, oh man, he did not deserve what he got. But with the older brother as well, neither did he deserve what he had the whole time. See, the, fa the father never stopped loving the younger son because of his offense, but neither did the father ever stop loving the older son, or you could say even loved him more because of what he had done. It's because God doesn't love because of the good things that we do for him. He loves those things, right? He loves it when we would do things to honor his name or we do things following his word. But that's not why he loves. I picture it a little bit like a, like a love meter. Like, you know, God's love is maxed out on that meter. If you could imagine, you know, the red going all the way to the top. And there's nothing that we could ever do to make that meter go down for God to love us any less. But you know what? Because that meter is maxed out, nor is there anything that we can do to make him love us anymore. Jesus tells a couple of parables before sharing the story of the lost son, which are really interesting. One is the lost sheep. He says, he says listen, suppose there are a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off and gets lost. And then you notice that that one is missing. Wouldn't you go off and search for it until you finally found it? Now, you know, what's funny is we read that story. And of course, you know, we know that the answer is supposed to be yes. But you know what? I bet you the people in the crowd there, when Jesus said that, may have even thought that it was a rhetorical question. 
Because why would you go off and kill yourself trying to find one, leaving 99 others vulnerable in the field there from predators when you've already got so many more? Have you ever thought that to yourself? They may have very well thought it was a rhetorical question. And so Jesus, if you go back, he doesn't even let him answer it. He just, again, like, you know, interrupts them. He interjects. And he says, of course, of course you would leave the 99 others. And you'd go off to chase the one. And when you'd find that one, you'd bring it back. And same thing, man, a party is thrown. And he said, likewise, the same kind of party is thrown when one person is rescued from being lost and returns to God. And the point of that story is not to say that one sheep was more valuable than 99. The point is just simply to say how valuable each one is to God. And so even in John 3.16, when it says, God, for God so loved the world, you know, I think of probably even a better reading of that is for God so loved each and every one of us that he was willing to give his one and only son so that we may have eternal life. Uh, the second thing is this, is that we're all lost and in need of a savior. The problem that the older brother encountered is that deep down he assumed that he was good enough to be perfect in his father's eyes. In terms of his spirit, assumed that his obedience was his saving grace and therefore did not need the same kind of grace that was expressed to his younger brother. He needed no handouts. He had because he had earned, he thought. But to have such a mentality is to not realize your lostness. See, that's sort of the irony of the story, is that just as much as the younger brother is lost, so too was the older. Um, I, I was reading in a commentary by Timothy Keller, and I loved this quote. I don't have it for you on screen since it was so last minute, but um, I like it a lot. He says, if, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person. Well, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration. But he's not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. And the third thing is this, is that it's not about whose we are. Or it's about whose we are and not who we are. For we will always truly find ourselves in relationship with God. In fact, I always think it's really interesting when, you know, you'll hear this from people sometimes that, you know, they, uh, especially young people, like they, they just need to find who they are, right? And so a lot of times it'll lead uh, young people on like these different quests, you know, they feel like they got to they gotta conquer some sort of adventure, you know, whatever. And it's all in order to like really find themselves, which I don't discredit at all. But yet at the same time, you know, the Bible says that, listen, no one knows you better than the creator. 
David would even say in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart because you know every single little thing about me. And so we ever truly find ourselves when we are in that right relationship with God. For us, about whose we are and not so much who we are. The older son wasn't satisfied with the relationship with the father at the end. It seems at first that he had a good relationship with him, but we find in the end that it wasn't fueled by intimacy. It was instead fueled by pride. He was obedient because of what he felt he could get from the father and not so much out of love. I'll leave you with this story. It's a cool little parable that um, I heard some time back. It's about Jesus and uh, his disciples. And this story is, this parable is not to be clear in the Bible. It just happens to be about the Bible characters. And one day Jesus and his disciples um, were walking along and Jesus suddenly stopped them and he said, you know what, guys? I'd like you all to carry a stone for me. And he didn't give any sort of explanation. And so the disciples, they, they looked around. They found a stone to carry. And Peter, always being of the practical sort, he, of course, searched for the small find, And he found that rock, and then he stuck it in his pocket. And after all the other guys had found their stones to carry, Jesus said, all right, now I want you to walk with me. I want you to take those stones. I want you to follow me. And he led them on this journey, on this walk. About noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down. And then he waved his hands over the stones. And they instantly turned to bread. He said... Now it's time for lunch. And in a few seconds, well, Peter's lunch was all over. <laughs> and when lunch was done, they all stood up and Jesus did it again. He said, all right, guys, once again, I want you to carry a stone for me. And so this time, Peter thought, aha, okay, now I got it. So this time he looked around for the biggest, the biggest rock that he could muster. Right, the biggest rock that he could carry. And he lugged that thing around. He hoisted it up on his shoulder. And it was painful. And it made him stagger a little bit. But he thought to himself, dinner's going to be a feast. And then Jesus said once again, all right, guys, now take your rocks that you're carrying for me and follow me. And he led them to the side of the river. And he said, all right, now I want everyone to throw those rocks into the water. And so they did. And then he said again, all right, now that you've done that, I want you to follow me. Well, Peter and the others, they looked at him a little dumbfounded. Peter, of course, a little upset. And Jesus said to him, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Peter, who were you carrying that rock for? It's a good reminder for us. Why is it 
that we pursue relationship with God? Is it out of love? Or is it because of what we feel we may be able to receive? And one of the lessons that we learned there of the, the prodigal son is that the father wants us to love out of relationship, not out of obligation. It's always sort of even a daily gut check for us. Why is it that we desire to follow God? This morning we get to wrap up with the baptism, a young gal who has said, I want to follow God. I want to pursue relationship with God and I want my life to be aimed in his direction. We get to celebrate that this morning. We also, each week, we celebrate communion, which is a celebration of the good news, the fact that we were all once lost, and now we are found. And so we take that cracker and that juice, which represents Jesus' body and his blood, and we say, man, thank you, God, for being our Savior, for this is what I needed, because I am lost. With you, I can be found. Thank you for that relationship that I'm able to have with you. So we're going to do that um, after I pray. And then we'll sing a song. We'll do a baptism. And uh, we'll lead you out, right? The worship band can come on up. Come on up and uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for relationship. God, forgive us when things keep us from that relationship. Lord, sometimes we're on the end of the spectrum where it would be guilt and shame that keep us from running back to you. Lord, sometimes on the other end of the spectrum, it's because we feel it's something we deserve or something that we have to earn. And Lord, I thank you that you love recklessly. So Lord, we celebrate that through communion now for those of us who have a relationship with you. Say thank you for your sacrifice that you made that would cover our sin. All so that we can be found for we are all lost. So, Lord, we love you. Again, we give you this time. In your name, amen.